Welcome again to Mormon Land. It's the Salt Lake Tribune's podcast about LDS practices and preaching. I'm Dave Noyce. I'm the religion editor here at the Tribune, and also the managing editor. And I'm joined once again by our ace senior religion reporter, Peggy Fletcher Stack. Hi, Peggy. Hi, Dave. Glad to have you here. And we have a couple special guests today. Josh and Lolly Weed, they're a Mormon couple in Washington State. They've been married for 15 years, and they have four daughters. But they aren't your typical LDS family. You see, Josh is gay. Lolly is straight. They went into their marriage thinking they could make it work, but now they are divorcing. They wrote about that decision recently in an emotional essay they posted online, and they join us now from Seattle. Lolly, Josh, welcome to you both. Thank, Thank you. you. We're glad to have you with us. Josh, uh, give our listeners a little background. When did you first come to know that you were gay? Um, I first realized I was gay when I was 13 years old-ish. Just, you know, kind of the classic early puberty. You're waiting for the attractions to girls set in. That's what you've been told all along will happen. And And then there's this kind of, like, realization that, like, oh... That's not going to happen. And also this other thing, these kind of feelings for other guys are its replacement, which in the context of my life uh, as a young Mormon was a pretty horrifying realization. And then I I came out to my dad at that point. What did you tell him? I pulled him downstairs to my room and I I I said, I think I'm gay. And he kind of did not act surprised. He kind of already, I think, knew. I think that, I think, I now know, I've talked to the adults in my life, they had all kind of suspected since I was really young, like two or three years old, so. Wow. Interesting. And um, so, Lolly, when did you meet Josh, and what did you think when he told you? How old were you, Um, and how'd you know each other? (laughs) We actually grew up together on the same street in Utah. <laughs> I don't remember not knowing him. So, um, And then when I was in high school, I moved to Portland, Oregon, and then a year later Josh moved to Portland, Oregon in the same city. So The same suburb, even. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so um, we we're friends up in Portland again, and, um... Were you in the same we LDS were, ward? Um, in, growing up, we were in the same LDS ward. Josh's dad was my bishop, and my dad was his counselor in the bishopric. Um, but A then lot of connections. When, yeah, <laughs> it's an interesting connection. Um, but in Portland, we were not in the same ward. We lived about 10 minutes away from each other. One stake away. Yeah. Um... And so we were hanging out one day, and he was telling me that he had something about himself that he wanted to tell me, but that he was really nervous. And so I was like, okay, you can tell me. Um, But then he just kept backing away and being like, no, I can't, I can't. I've never really told anybody this. Eventually, at the end of the night, he made me guess what it was. (laughs) And that was really... (laughs) hard for me to guess because he he had said something like I feel like you'll understand this because of your family and when he said that I knew what he was talking about because my grandpa um, my mom's dad was gay and uh, he actually died of AIDS when I was 14 and so when he said that I kind of like 
made sense to me that that he was gay too. Um, and so I asked him if he was gay, and then he said, no. <laughs> and then I said, oh, good. And then he looked at me and with like a pained expression, and he said, why did you say, oh, good? And then I knew he really was gay, and, and I just remember saying, because that would be really hard. Um, and then that started years and years of us talking about this issue and trying to make sense of it and um, growing really close together. So that's interesting because you, you entered marriage knowing fully well that Josh is gay, so why go through with it? That is a good question because for years when we were friends, I, whenever we would talk about it, like the possibility of getting married, I would always say, no way, like... The possibility of me getting, you know, yeah. we would conceptually be like, well, maybe, because this is the 90s, <laughs> and we, don't have, we didn't have a lot of information, so maybe, I, maybe Josh, you could go, and maybe you could should marry a woman, but, like, she was always like, but not me. I would never, <laughs> like... <laughs> yeah, well, he, I remember asking him what his plan was, and he said he wanted to get married and go on a mission. And so we talked about if that was a possibility or not, and I remember saying, yeah, it is a possibility, but maybe you should marry someone that doesn't care about sex because I care too much about sex to marry someone that's gay. And <laughs> so years and years like passed by with us talking about this, and I, I started – he actually ended up dating my roommate, which was my best friend, and – Seeing him in a relationship with someone else, I think I'd never seen him in a heterosexual relationship. And I thought, oh, maybe this could work. And I and I loved him. And so I just started letting myself fall in love with him. And um, I mean, but the bottom line, though, is like spiritual, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah, for sure. Like. I think that, that that was definitely the thing that made it happen was we, we fell in love. Well, <laughs> whatever you want to say Call about that. Um, and, um, and he went on his mission, and we he went on his mission with us thinking, you know, that I might get married when he was gone. And then I ended up going on a mission while he was gone. And then when he came back, like, we both had – very distinct spiritual experiences that that we were supposed to get married and i i know that that was true like i still don't deny that like i i know that this was supposed to happen for a reason and they uh, were very powerful yeah experiences when you say spiritual you you mean more spiritual isn't that you felt a strong feeling that you should get married not necessarily some kind of institutional pressure that this is what you're supposed to do There was that, too, but mm -hmm. that wasn't the motivating factor. I, yeah, I don't think, yeah, I think the motivating factor, the thing that made us ultimately go through was our individual spiritual um, confirmations. Um, but I, I know that with the institutional pressure, without that, we would have never even considered this as a possibility. So you got married. What year was that? 2002. And did you, was it harder than you thought it would be? 
Like <laughs> what what right away kinds of stuff did you face? You know, what was interesting was I remember the day that we got married, uh, walking out of the Salt Lake Temple and and looking at all the people that were there and wondering what they would think if they all knew, like, because we hadn't really told a lot of people. And and so from the beginning, it was like we had the secret, you know, mm-hmm. and... Um, Lolly, did your family know about it? Yeah, my family did know, so... And Josh's yeah. family, but just nobody yeah, else, yeah. like your roommate. That, and was, that was pretty much it. Mm-hmm. Did, okay. did anyone try to talk you out of it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, my... Obviously, my grandma, who married a gay man, and they got divorced uh, when I was one, and he died of AIDS. She uh, had said when at first when we started dating that if I were to marry him, Josh, that it would break her heart and to, that I shouldn't do it. And then after maybe a year, um, she came to me out of nowhere and said, that she gave me her blessing because she realized that me and Josh were different people than her and my grandpa. Um, My mom also was really concerned, and I remember her talking and saying that she loved Josh. I mean, she's known him since he was a little boy, and saying that he was, she thought he was perfect for me, except that he was gay. And she just said, I I would never wish this for you. but I'll support you in what you decide. And what were people telling? Yeah, what were people oh. telling you, Josh? Oh, I was just gonna. I was gonna say that ultimately, for um, like the, it was again like they, her parents trusted her intuition and her spiritual connection. So when she came saying like, "No, I know that I'm supposed to do this," they were they were they were on board. They believe her. They believed her. For me, no one was pressured. No one, no. I was a, I was a young gay Mormon saying, I'm going to do the quote-unquote right thing. So, yeah, there was no, like, family member pulling me aside at all, being like, hey, maybe you should think twice. Everyone instead was kind of really celebratory, like, oh, you're not going to go live the scary um, alternative lifestyle that gay people live. You're, you're towing the line. Um, and so, yeah, there was, there was no one, you know, there was, I mean, uh, yeah, there just was no one that was concerned. Really most, most of the people in my life were really excited and kind of overjoyed that Hmm. I was making that decision. So I, I wrote, I reached out to you in 06 with a story I wrote about several couples and you told us their story then, but needed a pseudonym so this is four years into your marriage you're still not so sure about using your real names right right so who knew at at four after four years who knew about you anybody Mm, same probably the same people we maybe told a couple of friends but it was really secret it was very we considered it very private piece of our lives <clears throat> we sure. were very conversant about it, but with it within ourselves, amongst ourselves. But uh, but yeah, very few people knew. Some church leaders. It was very secret. It was 
you know, this is like not a lot of people. It's just the progression of this issue within the Mormon community has been so uh, extensive that it's kind of hard to even remember what it was like, even back in 2006. But that was before Proposition 8. You know, there, there was right. actually just mm-hmm. low awareness still altogether mm-hmm. about this issue. There weren't a lot of blogs out there. There wasn't a lot of community. Like, remember... You went to Evergreen, and it was... I went to one meeting of Evergreen. And it was really secretive. And, and it was super, like, yeah, it just felt cloak and dagger and really awkward, and I did not like it. Like, it was weird. Now, Evergreen was, uh, for our listeners, some of whom may not know, was a support system, I guess, for gay Mormons and their families? Yeah, it was pretty much the only resource available to somebody who was wanting to remain LDS uh, and, you know kind of like quote-unquote work on their homosexual desires it was i mean frankly it was kind of a reparative therapy leaning organization Mm. which i just didn't i didn't have enough awareness of uh different therapeutic models at that time to really be able to see what it was but but you but you weren't comfortable right away you yeah it didn't feel great yeah but the marriage was going pretty well would you say? Yeah. Would you both say? Yeah, I yeah, it was. It I mean, was. yeah, we we were best friends. We had really excellent communication. We had a lot of fun together. And I think, you know, we were both virgins when we got married, and we were in our early twenties. So, I think it was like, hey, <laughs> getting to have sex at all, no matter who it's with, was a good thing, you know? Be <laughs> repressed. <laughs> and you had some children by then, right? Uh, our first was 2006. 2006, okay. Mm-hmm. So, so six years later, you did go public and, and made quite a stir. Um, right. Why that decision? We're super cheesy spiritual people. So, like, <laughs> it is, it, you know, that will always kind of be our answer. We we were randomly one day, it occurred to Lolly, I was writing a blog post for a humor blog. I mean, it's the same place that I just published this recent post. But uh, And I was, like, having writer's block, and I couldn't figure out why. And she just, it occurred to her, she was like, I think you need to come out. Like, I think you're just feeling inauthentic. And we were both kind of like, whoa, like we could feel kind of the gravity of that. And we remember feeling so weird about that because um, in 2006, when Peggy, when you did run a story about us, Mm -hmm. we were contacted at that time by a talk show and a couple of other things. And we were, we were very kind of like, uh, we considered it seriously and prayed about it, and our kind of spiritual indications at that point were like, nope, you need to keep this. Hey, for the record, out. I did not give your name out to anybody. Oh, I believe it. I believe it. I think we were contacted like, yeah, I think they contacted us through the blog, not knowing who we were. So you okay. yeah. <laughs> that was not to throw you under the bus. <laughs> But anyway, to contrast those moments, you know, at one point it felt like we needed to be so private, and then we were suddenly feeling the exact opposite, that we needed to come out publicly. Um, But we had no conception in 2012 with our coming out post of, like, the nature of what that 
what that would do. Like, we were coming out publicly as in to our local community here in the Pacific Northwest. We wanted to be authentic and, you know, the people on our Facebook list, the people I was, I was starting my therapy practice. So, you know, we wanted to have authenticity in that realm, but we had no concept of virality, what, what a viral post meant, what it would do. Um, it, that came as a huge surprise. Talk about that. How did, how did, for instance, the LGBTQ community react? To the 2012 post, um, there was mixed reaction. There were a lot of people that, that were kind of like, because our basic declaration in that, in that post was, um, hey, I am gay, and it was very, you know, it wasn't, it was not, it didn't have an ex-gay flavor to it because I was not, I didn't consider myself, I was, I knew I was gay, you know, uh, but it was kind of like, I'm gay, but I kind of fell in love with this woman, and we're together, and so this is what we're doing. And so some of the LGBT contingent at that time was kind of like, wow, that's really novel, and that's kind of cool, and you just love who you love, and we support you, hopefully you support us. But then there were other factions that were um, that were uh, understandably maybe skeptical, or it just was concerning. Um, and so, yeah, kind of a mixed reaction at that point. Did some people in your faith community, in your Mormon community, uh, advise you not to do it? And were they upset that you did it? Um, yeah, actually. We're, interestingly... Um, yeah, tell us about that. Interestingly, there, yeah, we had, we had uh, church leaders who were pretty adamant that we not go public. In fact, I at the time was a seminary teacher, an early morning seminary teacher, and I was told that if I, if we went out, if we came out publicly, if if I, if we kept it a secret, I could keep my calling teaching the youth, but if I came out publicly, I would be released. And I remember just being like, that is the most backward-sounding thing ever. If I keep this thing secret, you will let me instruct your youth. But if I come out publicly, you know, it just felt really weird. Yet you were living the church standards. Yeah, completely. Temple recommend holder, and, you know, I remember one of the leaders that was talking to me was kind of like, like made that observation. Like He was like, it's so odd that we're talking to you like this because you're not technically doing anything you know you're not infracting at all Mm -hmm. and so why do you think they were like that why what was that why do you think they responded that way that seems just Mm, backward they, they were worried about the backlash that they would get from parents in the stake hmm that a gay man was teaching their children yep and i think also just this is just how, uh, you know, people who are not exposed to an issue, issue like this respond, like, very fear-based response, very kind of alarmist, uh, hmm. and very, you know, very control, like, wanting to have control over whatever narrative. And, uh, Lolly, you speak to this. Didn't, some, didn't they tell you that they sort of didn't trust your inspiration to do it? Yeah, I think that was that was 
probably the hardest part of this whole thing for me was um, praying about this, feeling like we really needed to be open about our marriage and about Josh's sexual orientation. And this was not something we took lightly. Um, You know, there was a lot of prayer that went into it um, and blessings were given and, uh, and, so I remember telling a leader, you know, just letting them know we had strong testimonies and that we really felt like this was what God wanted us to do. And I was just shut down at that point and just was told that they didn't think we should have done that. And they didn't really listen to our experience or um, and, and didn't validate it at all. And this was about a decision that was purely ours to make. Like exactly. This, this right. It's not something that they, you know, even even for very believing members of the church, uh, this is something that, like, this was not within their purview, whether or not we post something like this on our personal blog. Right. You know, this was not something they really had any say in. Which I thought was interesting, too, because we ended up talking to church public relations in Salt Lake, and they were just very helpful and nice and were just saying, well, we don't tell our members what to do in terms of, you know, public uh, statements or what publicity things you want to do, what media opportunities. They're like, we don't tell our members, but we can give you advice or tell you what our experience has been. But they were very supportive and uh, helpful. And so it it was interesting to have that juxtaposition with our leaders. Um, and, you know, this is 2012, so I think, well, I know it would be different now because we... It has been different. It has been different this time around. Let's let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, obviously, let's go forward now. Now you're deciding to divorce. Wait, we, wait, before that. So yeah. you have three more children, right? Yeah. Yes, so you yes. have four children now. So how did you get to this point? And why why decide now to 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 split up? Well, like I said, it's like I mean, the bottom line answer is like always the same for us because of our cheesy spiritual selves. <laughs> but, so like it's all felt very directed to us by God. But but to answer the question in a more satisfactory way, um, I mean, in the post itself, I talk about there being three kind of main tributaries that led into um, into kind of like the setup that allowed us to even conceptualize what we were spiritually feeling, because this was something like, Lolly and I, first of all, are very, um, we're very connect- connected to each other, very devoted to each other, and we're also very committed people in general. And so like, to even fathom the idea of separation was, such a stretch that like it kind of took a lot like like our life had to there had to be a lot of kind of indicators that were kind of pushing us in that direction either via god or just the you know however you want to conceptualize it like the universe was kind of like pushing us into that place in many ways to even get us to like entertain the idea in the most remotest in the most remote way so some of the tributaries were um after my mom passed my mom passed away in 2016 
And after that, I was just not able to have sex with Wally anymore. Um, and then the other two that I mentioned in the post were during the ensuing five years from the original blog post, we had just con we had contact with so many LGBT people. Before that, we really didn't know very many at all. I could probably count them on two hands. But uh, but after that, uh, you know, in my therapy practice, and then we would go and kind of participate in different events, and we met hundreds and hundreds of LGBT Mormons, and we were hearing their stories and seeing certain patterns and seeing things that were very troubling about what being Mormon and LGBT meant uh, and, and how it affected people in a, in a more general way. And our love for people like me, people in the LGBT contingent, just grew and grew and our, our empathy and our concern grew. And then at the same time, I had some, in, you know, personal kind of insights. I had, a, because I had admitted and owned my homosexuality so early at age 13 and come out even, I had in my mind this idea that like, oh, I'm very self-accepting. Like, I'm not, I'm not internally homophobic. I've known I was gay all along. I've never tried to deny that. But then in recent years, you know, I had a friend that really challenged me about like whether or not I loved myself, loved this part of myself. And as he did that, I came to kind of realize like, oh, I still have these kind of deep reservoirs of uh, self-loathing connected to my homosexuality, to connected to my sexual orientation that I just wasn't even aware of. Josh, is, is this, this is your friend? growing up in the environment I grew up in. So. I'm sorry, Josh, is this your friend Ben that you refer to? That, yeah. Could, yep. could, you, could you recount a little bit of that conversation that he had with you? Yeah. So Ben is, He's straight, and he and I became, we, we met for the first time years and years ago on my mission, but we didn't really ha have a friendship at that point. It, we became friends in, like, 2014, um, and he, it's funny because a lot of, like, a lot of people in my position, uh, a, a gay Mormon man trying to live the gospel of, you know, of Christ, or be a tr more so trying to fit the parameters of Mormonism, um, there's always this talk of, like, if I could just find, like, a good friend, like, a best friend, then maybe, maybe whatever, uh, maybe this drive towards connecting with men will, will be satiated and satisfied, and a, a, a good, straight friend who is safe, who I will never have any, you know, uh, temptation to kind of, like, uh, act out sexually with, but who I can feel close to. Anyway, so... Ben, uh, functionally, kind of like would have been that if that were a thing that would be a, a solution. He was, he's just a great guy and very, very loving, and our friendship is very deep. And, and anyway, so at one point he and I were uh, hanging out doing something, and I must have said something, but he kind of turned to me. I must have said something self-effacing uh, about my sexual orientation, but he turned to me and said, wait a minute, you realize that your sexual orientation is beautiful, right? And when he said that, it, like, really challenged me. <laughs> and I was like, wait, 
I'm sorry, what? Because, like, even believing that he, as a straight man, could view it that way seemed impossible to me based on my past experiences. And so I kind of, like, really kind of pushed back, like, what do you mean, beautiful? Like, I know it's not, like, abominable, like I was told when I was a kid, but, like, beautiful, really? What are you seeing? And he was just insistent and very genuine, just... He could just see me so clearly. He was just like, no, it's beautiful. And I kind of pushed back and kind of wanted him to prove how, you know, how is something that would be considered a biological aberration? These are the words I was saying at that point. Uh, how could that be considered beautiful? And he kind of was very thoughtful and and pointed out other, He's just he was just like, actually, variation is what we as humans find to be beautiful in, in a lot of cases. And you know, the two of the examples that he said, which I talked about in the the blog post, were he, he mentioned that blue eyes, which is something many people find very beautiful, are are a variation on eye color, really um, dark eyes are the, the biological norm. And then he also mentioned how, you know, he's like, do you, you know how, like, people come to, you know, the Grand Canyon? Like, people go there, take pictures there, they, they flock there because it's beautiful, it's considered gorgeous breathtaking and he's kind of like that's that is a variation that's an you know that is that is a aberration against the norm and i as he kind of was able to illustrate those things my eyes were opened to this reality finally and i i was like oh my gosh maybe this is true of me maybe my sexual orientation is in fact not ugly but beautiful a beautiful part of me and I went home that night and kind of told Lolly and she was like Ben is right it is a beautiful part of you this is you it is who you are and so that was a that was a pivotal moment so Lolly what was going on with you during this period of time um it from like a believing Mormon standpoint, it was very challenging for me to, um, sorry, our baby, um, to <laughs> to hear the things that like Ben was saying and to sit with that and think, wait, this is right. Like Josh is who he is because of all of him, you know, and all of him includes his sexual orientation. And I know he would not be the same person if he were straight. And I love who he is. And so stepping back and thinking, well, maybe, maybe this is not, there's not something wrong with him. Um, Maybe he is the way he's always supposed to be. That kind of challenged what I had been taught in church all along and um, and then feeling like spiritually like that was the, the right thing, that he was who he needed to be. But that kind of changed the way that we were viewing our marriage um, because in the past it was kind of like, okay, well, when you get to heaven, you'll be changed to how you're supposed to be, which is straight. And and then starting to think, well, wait a minute, if you are the way that you're supposed to be, then what does that mean for the afterlife? Like, are you, 
are you still going to be gay? And what does that mean for our marriage? And, um, and I had always thought, you know, that I could, I could handle this, like this part of our marriage, if it was going to be different in the afterlife, if that makes any sense. I thought he was worth it to me. I was willing to, to do this and then it would be fixed. And so then to think, wait a minute, this is who he is and it's, there's nothing to fix. And so that means there is something very off (laughs) in our marriage too, if that even makes any sense. (laughs) And how are you feeling about yourself? Um, it had definitely, our marriage over the years had taken its toll on me. Um, it is really hard to love someone so deeply and, and to give everything you have to that person and to not have them love you back in the same way. Um, you know, you hear of unrequited love and there comes like a point where that person should move on, (laughs) you know, and find someone that can love them back in the same way that they're loving them. And, and so I just felt kind of stuck, um, in our marriage because I loved him so much and he didn't love me back that way. Um, and I started feeling like everything feminine about me was gross. And I was starting to feel embarrassed of my body and of who I was, even though he never he he never said anything. Um, I just it it was just hard to live that way. So even though, like as a therapist, I knew all of the things that I should be telling myself. I knew that I should not be getting my self-esteem from someone else. Um, I was telling myself all these things, but there's also something to be said about staying in a relationship that's not healthy for you as well. Like, if you want to feel good about yourself, you need to be putting yourself in healthy situations and removing yourself from, I mean, I would say abusive, but it wasn't, you know, he wasn't abusing me, but it, it was, emotionally abusive the relationship itself was. let's clarify what you mean by that. So, like, we're talking about uh, functionally the... um, So, like, our our connection was really, really close and and our our marriage itself was very... uh, Like, our communication was really amazing and we were always very loving... But if I'm understanding what you're saying, Lolly, correctly, you're talking about, like, the actual setup of the relationship where there is an inherent incongruity where just by the very nature of things, as a, as a straight woman loving someone who is gay, who cannot love you back, there's just this perpetual uh, degradation to that. Right. Like where, and, and this is something that, I mean, this is kind of, Lolly, right? Like, this is kind of what we ended up finally understanding is like, this was what our denial was. The denial that fell away was we were had for so long telling ourselves, like, no, it's okay. And like, we just love each other like old people love each other. And, right. um, and then kind of realizing, like, wait, no, like, no, uh, it is true that f- 
physical and sexual attraction is not all that a relationship is made of. And any good relationship should definitely consist of much more than just that component. But there is no real relationship that is romantic without that component. And that second part was the part we hadn't been looking at. Yeah, and I'm sorry, I I should not have used the word abusive. I was just, it was exactly what he said. Well, I think you were saying that the relationship itself almost was hurting us. Yes. It was hurting, it was hurting both of us. Right. And it was, yeah, it was not Josh himself because our connection was amazing. And I think that that is one thing that I've been frustrated with in, in the response to our story, the most recent story is just people coming out and saying things like there's more to love than romance and romance dies and all of this stuff, but that they're missing a huge point of what we're saying if by saying that like uh yeah, romance can fizzle, but you can always reignite it, but there if the orientations line up. Right. Correctly. But if there's never a fire to begin with, there's nothing to reignite. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I know how to help reignite a marriage. Like, that's what we do with our clients. And there was no reigniting <laughs> this fire. Like, there was no fire to reignite. Yeah. There wasn't even a lighter. Like, it just, <laughs> it just didn't work. <laughs> so. So has how has been the general response to this one, and how could could you compare it to the 2012 blog you did? Hmm. Hmm. Um, I'll go first. So general response, it's actually similar. An outpouring of love initially. About 24 hours in, come the haters. I don't know. <laughs> come come the mm-hmm. come like other kinds of comments, uh, and and that's when people kind of. Uh, it gets a little dicier. Um, uh, one of the things that's happening is I've realized now that when you give a public apology, people want to dogpile. <laughs> so it's like you give a public apology and people are like, oh, someone's taking responsibility for something. Well, you also did this too, you know, <laughs> things that are not accurate. So like on Twitter, people will see something vague about who we are and that we were saying sorry. And so people will come on, come online and be like, you are a despicable liar. And, you know, like, and how dare you, um, like, you know, do, do reparative therapy or, or promote something that's so false, you know, these, so people are kind of dogpiling uh, a lot of things that really weren't part of our story onto us because we're taking, because we did have a stance of uh, an apologetic stance. So who are you Um, apologizing to, Josh? So Maybe explain that to we, listeners. Yeah, we did list an apology, and um, and I think that it's a really important one, and it's very ha- heartfelt. Uh, and the main people we were apologizing to, and really, we were catalytic agents to the harm that was happening. We were not necessarily the harm itself. If our post had not gone viral in 2012, you know, like we didn't choose that but it did happen and so we and we want to take responsibility for it but what what would happen is the viral post was used by family members of LGBT Mormons uh to basically kind of manipulate them into um doing what we did so i any any mormon 
that I've talked to who is LGBT who makes any kind of public declaration of their sexual orientation, and I'm not kidding, like any person that comes out would be sent our blog post. And a lot of times the numbers were up to like 10 to 12. Like I would always hear about 10 to 12 people would send, you know, some, uh, an LGBT Mormon would come out of the closet and then they would have that many people kind of like very, you know, very well-intentioned sending our blog post from 2012. Like, hey, I came across this couple and here's what they're doing. Uh, they're married each other, so they get to, they're doing the they're doing the right thing. So maybe you can do that. And then it and then there were even more kind of like uh, intense examples of of families who used our story to justify exclusion of their kids. Or you know, if you don't do this, then you are not worthy of our family. And some really heartbreaking stuff. And to be clear, so, you 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 never advocated that people do what you were doing correct? No. Make that choice. Yeah, that's one of the ironies is even that first 2012 post itself very, very explicitly says, do not pressure. In fact, it says you need to just love your LGBT family members. But that didn't stop people from doing it uh, and doing this. And so um, so damage was done for sure. Uh, but yeah, and, and since 2012, any speaking engagement we've ever had, anything we've ever done, one of the main emphases has been this apology. But while we were still married, that apology coming from us had this inherent, like, incongruity. We're like, we're sorry, and please don't recommend this, but we're also still married and we're also still this entity that you can use as a battering ram to kind of manipulate you know so when we realized that we were going to be getting divorced it was really clear that we had to make a public statement and say this is the end of this story for you know just so you know all of you who have sent this to your loved ones in the past like you need to know that this is how this story is ending it is not this perfect kind of like capsule that you can 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 you know send out to to uh, Mormons that are coming out like it's ending in a very sad way. So Lolly, what was it like telling the girls? Um, I was dreading telling them, um, but I we had talked about how we were going to do it, and I had read this book called Stella Luna a couple of years ago um, that was about a baby bat that was trying to live as a bird and um, who had lost all of her bat ways and uh, ended up realizing she was a bat and accepting that and the joy that she found in that. And I had read it to my girls. And when I read that book, I remember like being heart sick because I could see Josh in this in this story that he was this bat trying to live as a bird, um, and so because my girls were familiar with that story, um, I I told them about it. They actually um, they knew something was going on because we were always like when we realized that this was happening, we were like crying a lot and it's trying very to traumatic. process <laughs> and um, and 
so they knew that we were sad. Um, and we weren't like yelling or fighting. We were just crying all the time and like in each well, other's I mean, there arms. was a fight or two. Oh, well, yeah, we did fight. But it was mainly but us in our room falling into each other's arms. It was very, very sad. But the fights were not any different from yeah. our <laughs> normal <laughs> um, So um, they were picking up on the sadness. And um, I remember Anna one night asked if I was okay. And I said, yeah, I'm fine. Why? And then she said, well, you just seem really fragile lately. And so they were picking up on it. And then one is this day, your oldest? Is this your yeah, oldest? My, our oldest is and 11. 11, okay. Yeah. And one day uh, we were in the car and she asked if Josh and I were gonna di- getting a divorce. And we had planned on telling them together and in in a certain way, but we never lie to our kids. And so when she asked me point blank, I knew I had to answer the question. And so I pulled over. I pulled Josh up on on uh, FaceTime. FaceTime, and we told them. And I said, you know, the Stella Luna. And I was like, well, Dad is, Dad is a bat, and he's been trying to live like a bird. And it's time for Dad. <laughs> it's time for Dad to go be a bat. And it doesn't mean that we're not still a family. It doesn't mean that we don't love each other very much still. Um, but daddy has had a hard time learning to love himself. And so it's time he, he loves himself and, and is who he was meant to always be. And, um, at first when, when she asked if we were getting a divorce and I didn't say no, they knew and they started crying. And, um, but as I started explaining it to them, um, they stopped crying and, um, and Anna had said that dad needed to love himself and that he was perfect just the way he was. And she even said, even in that conversation, she's like, mom, I don't want you to feel bad, but the spirit is telling me that you guys shouldn't be married anymore and that this is the right thing for our family. And so Wow. Our second oldest mm. said the same thing, just like, yeah, that that's true. This is the right thing. And so as, like, they were processing over the next couple of weeks, there were times where they were really sad, and I would check in with them, and, and they would say, you know, it's just really hard to think that my parents aren't going to be married anymore. And, and I would say, I am so sorry, you guys. I am really sorry. I did not want this for you. And they would always say, it's okay, Mom. Like, we know this is what's right for our family. Um, it's okay. And they have been so sweet and so supportive. and and So loving to me. I mean, just this beautifully, like, right. truly just, I mean. Our third born so is, like, super excited to meet her two new two dads. Two new dads. Like, she's like, <laughs> prayers and, like, prays for her two. I'm going to have three dads. Well, four dads because she counts God as one of her dads. <laughs> <laughs> My gosh. So what are your plans for the future? Oh. <laughs> you did write something about homesteading or something? Yes. Yeah. Um, well... The one thing that allowed us to think about ending our marriage was ironically thinking about never leaving each other. (laughs) (laughs) 
because we truly love each other and can't imagine our lives without each other. And so um, when we thought, you know, that this whole thing came about was because Josh realized that he didn't love parts of himself, and so we were trying to figure out how he could love himself as a gay man, and and he said, I don't know how to love myself as a gay man except to be a gay man. And so as we were trying to think, okay, well, how are we going to make this work? And just realizing that in order for him to be a gay man and to love himself, that we couldn't be married anymore. But how could we still stay together and still be a family? Um, and I remembered a blessing that I'd gotten um that had, like, I don't know, a year ago or so, that had mentioned that we would have a homestead eventually where our family would would come throughout the years and it would be like a refuge to our family. And so when we were thinking about ending our marriage, I just said, well, what about our homestead? Like, we were supposed to have a homestead together. And Josh had said, well, it, like, hit him. Like, wait, a homestead is, like, what, 160 acres? <laughs> and and he was like, what if, he's like, that's for, you know, it's a big plot of land where lots of people can live, and what if we never left each other? Like, what if we were always a family? And that was the only thing that brought us peace and made us be able to think about moving forward and changing the nature of our relationship was if we were always able to stay close and stay with our girls stay with our girls and always be a family together and and so that brought us a lot of peace and as we've talked to people there's been a lot of people that have been like uh good luck with that (laughs) how (laughs) are you bring some partners into that (laughs) yeah they're like yeah how are you going to find people that are willing to do that to especially me like a lot of people have been like you know Josh can find a gay man, and usually gay people are going to be more willing and accepting of non-traditional families. And um, but they're looking at me, saying, "How are you going to find a heterosexual guy that is going to accept the fact you have four children and are living with your gay ex-husband and his partner, like mm-hmm. that, and on the same property, on living on the same property? You know, how are you going to find that?" And I just I admit that it sounds crazy and it's pretty far-fetched, but, you know, why not try for that? (laughs) You know, why not hope and look for someone that has an open mind enough to be able to do that? And and I've had people say, you know, if, if he loves you enough, he would be willing to, to maybe consider these things. And, and so, that's kind of our plan, and I guess we'll see if there's someone out there that exists that would be willing to do this. I don't know. So Josh and and Lolly, you're both you're both hoping for marriage in the future. Um, now, Josh, of course, that could pose interesting problems for you if you married um, a man with your in your faith community. Um, um, how how do you foresee that playing out? I guess. <laughs> hard to know for sure i mean all i know is that all i know is you know what i what is next for me and that and so like pursuing that is next for me uh 
in terms of the in, you know in terms of my relationship with God I feel very connected and I mean he you know I have felt his guidance through this process I mean you better believe that we have questioned ourselves numerous times and kind of gone back to the drawing board and been like is this seriously what we are feeling like we're supposed to be doing on a spiritual level and every time we've done that it's been very clear that yeah this is what we're supposed to be doing but um but yeah so in terms of my relationship with deity that feels very much intact to me with regards to the institutional mormon church you know i kind of have a feeling this kind of sensation of like in some ways i was never really invited to be part of that like i was always if my family knew i was gay at the age of 2 and that and this was where this was going to end you know me partnering or marrying a man like you know, if they had known that that was my destiny and that's what God would want for me, like, they would never have let me in. <laughs> you know, like, the, I was not, I was never really accepted. I was only accepted insofar as I could contort into this kind of pseudo-straight uh, non-self. So, anyway, the the fact is the November 5th policy outlines that, excommun- you know, that marrying a a same-sex partner is excommunicable, and so I have to sit with the reality that, that that could very well be a reaction to when I do find a husband. Um, and also, I don't even know what to do with this, but like one of the one of the realities also of that policy is that any children living full-time with a gay parent who is married are are. rendered ineligible for baptism and you know our whole homestead idea here is that our children will be with me and lolly full time Uh, and so that raises the possibility that my children might not be eligible for baptism in the lds church but that's kind of not something that we can control we're not in charge of that all we can control is what we know we are supposed to be doing and so that's what our focus is, is on moving forward, doing what we know we are being led to do. So how is, how is your Mormon faith, Lolly? Where are you with that? Um, my faith. Um, I, I am still going to church. I still hold a temple recommend. I have talked to my bishop about you know, my feelings around the church and LGBT issues. And um, and luckily, my church leaders have been very um, compassionate now, and, and they've been willing to listen and, and support and love. And, and so I just, I am in this space where I'm looking and saying church leaders can make mistakes, Church leaders do make mistakes. That is just a common theme throughout history. Like, even in the Bible, you can find prophets that really screw up, (laughs) you know. And so I can just sit in that space saying that everything that is said in church is not necessarily truth. And that I'm just going to own what I feel is truth and sit there. And, like, with our daughters, when they come home... And say certain things, we 
we make sure that we talk to them about what they're learning in church just in case they're learning stuff that maybe we don't necessarily agree with um, so that we're kind of in charge of their spiritual learning too. And I feel like I need to stay. Like I feel like some people are called to stay, and I feel like I'm one of those people that even though there are things that definitely hurt me at church, like I go to church and sometimes I leave feeling worse than when I came. And that is not how church is supposed to be, but I still feel called to stay. And that maybe by me staying, um, there will be more good than bad (laughs) that comes out of it. Josh, Lolly, thank you so much for your candor and your willingness to discuss this these tender issues and we wish you and your children all the best truly and peggy thanks we look forward to your coverage at sltrib.com and we'll catch you next time on mormon land